Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Willowburn. And I just wanted to thank Gay. That was such a great time of just thinking about the Lord. And last week we talked about colours. Do you remember that, those that were here? The banner. I remember in the military, the banner, the colours, the emblem and logo that were emblazoned on those was so important to the military. That was what they fought and died under. When that fell, that represented that their military unit had fallen as well. And we talked about what is the banner of our heart or what is the banner of our heart emblazoning or representing or put upon. If it's not put upon the Lord Jesus Christ, upon God, then it is a false banner. And so when we worship as well, we want that banner to be held up high, higher than our troubles of the day, higher than our frustrations of the morning, higher than anything else. And thanks, Gabe, because he led us into that so well, and Luke, who also helped. So it's also pretty cool when I could take any slide of any song and pretty much preach you my sermon from it. And we might even do an experiment later. I'll just go to Gabe's music book at the end if someone reminds me. I'll just flick to a random page and you see whether it connects. That's pretty cool. So obviously we're continuing on with our series in Know Your Enemy. I think the enemy got into my uh, voice recorder last week and it stopped working. So I'm going to give you a little bit of revision in a minute anyway. So part one disappeared. This is actually part two. And this is part of the motif or the, the, the message we feel that God has kind of given us as we prayed and sought him earlier on in the year. The first part was first love first and we went through the God the Spirit series. Seven Splendors of the Holy Spirit. And now we also feel that we need to look at the enemy. We need to understand who our enemy is. He is malicious, malevolent, hell-bent, outraged at what God does. And yet he looks so nice. He looks like an angel of light. So we need to understand and we need to be on a little bit of a military footing. The banner just uh, just didn't represent affection or loyalty, or honour, or respect. It represented military power. It represented military power. So we need to understand a little bit about our enemy, but most of all, we need to understand who our God is, who our commander-in-chief is. So um, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of the enemy's schemes from the garden to the desert, the garden to the desert. But a little bit of revision, first of all, for those that weren't here last week. And the question that we asked last week was, are you afraid of the real threat? Because when you start talking about spiritual warfare and Satan and demons and all that kind of stuff as the Bible portrays them, it's easy to start getting a little bit worried, start attributing maybe ghosts and shadows to where they aren't and missing where they really are. Again, let me remind you that he's an angel of light, so often it's not when you expect it. And so we asked the question, are you afraid of the real threat? Because you could be afraid because of Satan's name. Remember, Lucifer, Satan, serpent, dragon, Murderer, father of um, lies, speaking lies as his native language. You could be afraid of his intent. We're going to see more of that in Revelation. Wanting to destroy, wanting to kill, wanting to cause torment. You could be afraid of his power. He does have limited power. We saw that last week. You could be afraid because of his deceptive ways. They're so tricky, so comprehensively cunning and smart. But should we be afraid of that? Is there anywhere, did anyone take up my challenge to find anywhere in the Bible where we're told to be afraid of Satan or his demons? Not once. No one's come to me, so I'm presuming you either didn't take up the challenge or you did and couldn't find anything. So should we be afraid of Satan's name, character, intent, power, authority? No, no, no. Because as we sang before, he that is in us 
is greater than he that is in the world. But we are told to be afraid of one thing, aren't we? From Luke, the book. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that who can do no more. In Matthew it says of he or Satan who can kill the body. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And we talked about this reverential uh, fear for God. That includes a fear of uh, disrespecting him, a fear of his power. Because if you are on the wrong side of the creator, you are in a world of hurt. Literally, you are a branch that's being broken off from the tree. You're destined, the Bible says, for a horrible place of separation from a good and holy God. Imagine the best pleasure you've ever had now being separated from that and knowing that you're separated from it. Jesus, not me, says fear him. And we have lost the fear of God in our society today. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. And then the very next verse, which I love, I love the way the Bible does this. It's like fear him. It's like this ferocious intimacy, this ferocious tenderness. It's like fear him because like God, God wants you to know the, the true consequences. He doesn't muck about. But then he quickly follows up with, but don't be afraid. You're worth more than sparrows. That is pretty cool. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. And so we looked at last week at how God, who is holy, righteous, and just, has come for us, has pursued us, has loved us. And the big thing that we wanted to be afraid of was losing that. As Paul said, I'm afraid that you'll be pulled away like Eve was from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That was something to be afraid of. That's something to be aware of. And we saw how powerful God was, how God would keep coming for us as our good shepherd. And this week, we want to look at Satan's schemes. And where do I get that kind of phraseology from? I get it from 2 Corinthians. Don't worry about turning there right now. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9. This is Paul writing, and he's pretty much summing up sort of his letter, 2 Corinthians, uh, that he wrote 2,000 years ago. And he says, I wrote, I, The reason I wrote you was to see that you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. So he's saying, the reason I wrote you was that to see that you would stand the test. And then he says here in verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. We are not unaware of his schemes. So many times we at Willowburn are unaware of his schemes. And we're going to see in a minute the strategy that he uses to antagonize one to another, one towards God, us towards God, towards each other, his distortions, his embellishments. And Paul here says, I'm not unaware of that. I know what he's up to. And the question I want to ask you is, are you aware? Without chasing after ghosts and goblins and all that kind of stuff, but are you aware that there is a spiritual enemy who would like nothing better than to outwit you, to pull you away from your pure and sincere devotion to Christ and to see you ultimately destroyed. Paul says, we are not unaware of his perceptions. In the, my little Greek dictionary gave me other uh, interpretations. His thoughts, his concepts of the mind, his devices, his contrivances, his plans. He has a plan. He has a master plan, a blueprint for destruction, for deception, for death. 
And so what I wanted to do today is to look at his schemes in the garden and the desert. Start in the garden and we'll end up in the desert. And then we're going to look at this grand scheme, this master scheme, this master plan that we really want to know about. There's all these sort of subplots going on all the time, but what is the master plot? Where are all these little tributaries of planning flowing? What's the big river? What's the big ocean that it's all flowing into? So let's start with the garden and turn with me, if you would, to uh, Genesis 3. And as you turn there, I just want you to know that you need to understand what's really being targeted here. It's not just innocence. It's not just immortality. It's not just, um, I guess, the power and sovereignty of God or the, the virtue of humanity at that time. What's really being targeted? Paul tells us again in 2 Corinthians, which I've alluded to a number of times, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Why? says here. Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you wanted to know what sincere and pure devotion looked like in a religious, virtuous, beautiful way, you would look in the garden and you would see a couple who wherever they walked, wherever they looked, they worshipped. Adam looked at his beautiful wife. Wow, thank you, Lord. That's awesome. No masks, no pretenses, nothing. Fruit trees everywhere. A beautiful garden that they would work together. They were helping each other in mutual, uh, mutual work, mutual respect, mutual honour. And it's this idea that as they look, wherever they look, it's just, oh, thank you, Lord. I love you. And, and then we know later God walks with them in the garden. There's a sincere and pure devotion. Just, just maybe meditate on that this week. His scheming targets that. It's targeting that, targeting that relationship. It is seeking to sever the creator and the creature. Let's read Genesis 3, 1 to 5. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. This last few weeks, I had someone ask me, oh, as soon as I got to the serpent bit, I stopped reading because it seemed so stupid. I thought, okay, fair enough. So one, Genesis 1 and 2, but I said, if you were to personify evil, what would you do? What kind of animal would you use? A little kitten? No, a snake. And I know, you know, thanks to the crocodile hunter and stuff, we're supposed to respect snakes, but they're still pretty yucky, don't you reckon? Like, yeah. <laughs> so the serpent personified here in evil. Later we find out it is some spiritual manifestation of Satan himself was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realised that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid 
from the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Let's pray. Father, I'd be foolish to think that right now there aren't some schemes afoot to block, distort, deny, twist, embellish, and otherwise lead people away from a sincere and pure devotion to you, Lord. There is only one remedy for this, and that is to know you as you really are. So reveal yourself to us. We rebuke Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we thank you, Father. Thank you for your gift. In Jesus' name, amen. So that is Genesis 3, and I'm sure you're all aware of that. And I want you to understand that that scheme was a scheme to death. It was a death scheme by Satan right from the beginning. And he has not changed his character one bit. He will continue to plot his death scheme out in your lives as well. And what I wanted to do is just use death up there, D-E-A-T-H, as a little bit of an acronym to help us understand Satan's death scheme, to help us to understand how it plays out in the garden. And you might even want to maybe write this down or help you to remember later on in the future, because I can always guarantee that his uh, plot is the same in your lives. It's always the same. It might not be with the same level of consequences immediately, but certainly later. That's why I've called it DEATH, the acronym DEATH, because he's always scheming for death, no matter how nice it seems in the immediate. And so this is a little bit of a, a checklist, I guess, of what he's up to. So what does DEATH stand for? It stands for, first of all, the D is distort. It is a scheme to distort truth. It is a scheme to embellish truth. Notice that I'm using truth and distortions of it and embellishments of it because that's how Satan works. He doesn't come in with a, an outright blatant lie. He always comes in with the truth laced with cyanide. CSC. Cyanide, no. Cyanide, sugar, cinnamon. You can say that really quick. You know, it's sugar and cinnamon, really sweet, nice, but it's got cyanide in it. Um, and then he brings an, antagoni an antagonization, uh, uh, unrest between people, hatred even. That is followed by torment, pain, suffering, and that is followed by hopeless futility. He will scheme to distort, he will scheme to embellish, he will scheme to antagonize, he will scheme because he wants to see you tormented and he wants to see you hopelessly futile, thinking that there is no hope whatsoever. This is where I'm at. And I, and I kind of I kinda wonder, I wonder to myself if that is where many people are at. And though it's a hidden statistic, suicide, as an example, continues to just go up and up and up. Why? Hopeless futility. There's no hope. We are not unaware of his schemes. So let's have a quick look at this. First of all, the D for distort. Like I said, it's a scheme to distort. It's partial truth. It's cinnamon, sugar, cyanide. Now, if you think about it, there's only really four things that can be distorted, four truths that God has given that can be distorted. First of all, who we are can change how God has given us an identity and who we are. It can distort. He can distort who God is in terms of our perception of God, can never distort who he really is. He can distort what creation is. And finally, he can distort what God has said. He can distort the creator, creation, the creator's command, and the creature, us. So 
We, we could spend hours on this, and I don't want to spend hours. You can do this yourself. But in your own lives, when you think about this death scheme, or as we look at Genesis now, you're going to see each time he's distorting something to do with creator, creature, command, or creation. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. Notice what he says. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See what he's done there? He's distorted the command already, hasn't he? He's already distorted the command. God never said that. Actually, what God said was, eat from any tree in the garden. That's how God always is generous, liberal with his grace. You know what? When this horrible event happens, they probably haven't even explored all the species of trees that are in that garden. They probably haven't even got to Japanese plum yet. They're probably still back at, I don't know, banana or something. Man, Japanese plum, that is awesome. And then all of a sudden the serpent comes along and, so God really said that you can't eat of that tree over there. It's like, oh, hang on. He's already distorting um, the command. And as he does that, he also distorts the creator because what he's doing is he is saying, God doesn't want you to have something. He's teasing you. He's mocking you. He's put that tree there so you can't have it. He's trying to make out that God is bad. You'll see this over and over again, that God is not who he says he's not as powerful. He's not as good. He's not as loving. Over and over again, a creator or a command distortion. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. Another command distortion. He didn't say that. You might not want to touch it. And I suspect it's not said in the text because this command was given to Adam. But somehow or another, in translation, when Adam has told his wife, his wife has heard, don't even touch it. And maybe he even put it in as an extra safeguard. Do not touch that tree. But just that one little bit that he added was the little foothold that Satan was able to get to say, oh, not even touch it. Again, distorting God's goodness of who he is, distorting the command. Now, more blatant as he sees he's making himself, or he's getting inroads with the woman. His death scheme, it's unfolding. And verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Creator, command, distortion. He takes what God has said about consequence. No, you're not really going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He moves on now to the creature, to the created, the person, Eve, and he says here that you're going to be like God. That's the one of the most common. You need to be like God. You need to be the center of your own universe. You need to be the sun. Everyone else, including God off in the distant galaxy, needs to orbit around you. It's all about your needs, your wants. And it's so easy to trace out this trajectory in society and then see so many different types of evil that are perpetrated against one another. And almost every time, someone can justify it. Even the, the horrible crimes that we see on, on, on TV. Remember that dude that locked up those women? He raped them. He did awful things to them for years and years and years. And he justified it in court. I'm not even going to tell you how he justified it. It was ridiculous. He was elevating himself. I get to say what's right or wrong. Not even the court should be telling me what is right or wrong. Certainly not God in his sense of justice. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, in verse 6, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. What's happened there? That bit of fruit right there, whatever it was, 
hope it wasn't Japanese plum. We don't know. Often in, it's seen as an apple, but it was never, never said in the scripture as an apple. It gets elevated and distorted. That will satisfy you more than obeying God. Creature, creation, command, creator, distorted. This very basic truth. Life is the creature in creation, trusting the creator's command. Life is the creature in creation, trusting the creator's command. Satan attacks every one of those four subjects there. The command, the creator, the creation, and the creature. He distorts it. He does it in such a nice way. Up till that time, the serpent was probably a nice animal that maybe if Adam and Eve had, had kids, would like to play with and stuff like that. Now he's a horrible, despicable enemy. So that's the distortion. That's how the distortion works. And you might well go, is there any hope at that point? Is there any hope? Because actually, it actually gets worse. There's, there's, there's um, yeah, it gets worse. Like, because he's got this other subplot going on. So he's got distortion and he's got embellishment. 3, 4, Genesis 3, to 4, uh, 3 uh, verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Now notice what happened. This, this is so important. This is so important, my brothers and sisters, because this is, this, is, this is where we're at oftentimes. I think most times we'll get the distortions, but this one here, I don't know. Sometimes I don't think we get it. Okay. He says, you will not surely die. Now, what he's saying there is you won't really die and there's an element of truth, but he has overstated that because they will die. What he's saying, though, in the near term, no, you won't really die. And so what he does is he, in, he embellishes the now. He makes the now way more attractive than what might happen consequentially in the future. And this is where most of us can often be. We seek after a pleasure. We seek after the creation, which has been distorted, and we don't care about the long-term consequences. That's why there's so many drug addicts, alcohol addicts. Because the near horizon of now has become embellished and big, overstated. He's also overstating and making sure that her, I guess, flesh sees that that um, creation is overstated as well. And so even today, something happens and we're chasing after something, it's the the now, the pleasure of now that seems so wonderful. But all you have to do is go, what happens tomorrow? Well, I mean, how many times after people go out and have an awesome night, the next morning they're just tragic? And you see them at the end of their lives when their bodies are riddled by alcohol poisoning, smoking, even people that are relatively healthy trying to hold on, hold on, hold on. It's all because the now has become more important and it's terrible. It leads to torment, which we'll get to in a minute. The other thing that can happen is he understates pain. So he's saying, no, no, the death isn't going to come straight away. It'll come later. He's understating it. He's understating the consequence. Overstate the immediate pleasure. Understate the future pain. But there's another insidious thing that he can do as well. He can actually overstate pain. So you're suffering in some way. You know what he does? A bit like Job. Be reading Job a number of times over the last few months and you see so much of what Satan is doing there. But so much of what, not so much, but a, a, a significant amount of what his friends say, I believe, is coming straight from Satan because one of them even talks about how he has this vision in the night of this horrible creature that comes to him and starts whispering. And all of it's leading to this meaninglessness of pain as though God somehow in his hidden counsel doesn't have a reason for it. 
And so the best thing that Satan can do in your pain is make it though as though it is your only horizon. It will last forever. It's not going to be dealt with. And if you're in that place, then please hear that there is hope. Wait till the end of this sermon even. Understate pain, overstate pain. Overstate pleasure, understate pleasure, embellishing. That's what he does. It's his death scheme. And you might go again, is, it, is there any hope? And, and is this the end scheme? Is this just all there is? Because again, this isn't even the worst of it, my brothers and sisters. The next bit we see all the time as well, and that's antagonise. Set up doubt, mistrust, hate, fear, suspicion, often because we're all chasing now after the now. Wait a minute, that bit of fruit there, that Japanese plum, there's only one left. Why should you have it? Don't you understand my needs? Don't you understand the pain that I've been through for my Japanese plum? So let's fight now. How dare you? I know I'm being really simplistic and probably reductionist, but you you see the the truth, don't you? In the things that you want. And doesn't James himself say, you know why there's fighting? Because you desire and you don't get what you desire. And it's all because you're desiring the wrong things. You're desiring the now, the immediate. Serpent was crafty, it says. And he knows, he knows that all this wanting, desiring now is going to lead to fighting. Paul warns the church in Galatia, stop biting each other or you will devour each other. Most times our irritation at someone else is because we haven't got what we wanted right now and whatever that person is doing is threatening what we're doing. It could just be as simple as not opening the door quickly. You know, we're we're fighting this all the time in ourselves, my brothers and sisters. Like even when we were down heading to Canberra, you know, you're in this car for a long time and, man, you can see it's like, oh, you're interrupting my comfort. Like, stop it. I just want this done now, you know. We have to pray about that and ask the Lord to help us. Doubt, fear, suspicion. And you go, wow, this Satan dude, so evil. Is there any hope? There is. But again, we're still not at the worst part of it because with distortion, embellishment, um, this and, and antagonizing of one another, hatred, bitterness, trust, mistrust, comes torment, suffering. We don't get what we want. We hurt each other. Relationships break down. There's dysfunction. There's torment. Even the happiest, happiest in appearance are heading for torment. You can have the best life ever and then, you know, you end up at the end of your life, your body's shutting down. There's suffering. You've lost all your friends. That's even if you have a good life. And in the meantime, there's this, also this sense of aching, this sense of wanting, this sense of wanting to be, I believe, with God again. This sense of absence. I call it the divinitus absentia because John Calvin and early theologians called it divinitus sensius, which was a big Latin word. I probably haven't even said it properly. I don't really care. Um, but it was this idea that everyone has a sense of God. Well, what I want to say is they all have a sense of their absence of God. Nothing satisfies the boat, the car. You know, they're cool things. But as soon as they become more than the creator... They just are destined to bring dissatisfaction, and they do because they wear out. It's the law of diminishing returns. Even the happiest are headed for torment. And then, of course, in that moment, as you get to the end of your life or you look around and there's been, I guess, even maybe a happy life in our uh, modern society, you look around and you go, what was it all for? And I encourage anyone, if they happen to listen to this at home or you want to go, just read Ecclesiastes, the book that Solomon wrote, that he had everything. He was, he was a cool postmodern 21st century guy, really. 
in terms of what he had, in the Western world anyway. And yet he said it was all what? Meaningless, meaningless, me or futile, futile, futile. Because it is. Who cares if you cark it at the end? You might go, oh, I've lived a full and satisfied life, but are you really satisfied in that moment as your body shuts down? I don't think so. And that's where Satan would like to have you, hopelessly futile, futilely hopeless, dead already, you just haven't lied down yet. That's what he wants. Dying, you will die. That's what the original Hebrew means. Dying, you will die. That's a scheme to death. So is there any hope? Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both of them were open. Eight, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. They hid. So now they're deceiving like Satan does. They're deceiving there, deceiving God, trying to. Is there any hope? And they are banished. They are out of God's presence. Really, uh, at that moment, existence should have been demolecularized, should have been done away with. It wasn't. So even that curse has become, in a way, a, a sense of grace because what God has done is he's delaying. And then we cut to from our schemes in the garden to the schemes in the desert. Schemes in the desert. And I'll get you to turn to Luke 4. What Satan does now is his scheming, his death scheme targets the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the second Adam in the Bible because he is the ultimate personification and representative of mankind, of humankind. But here in the desert, the stakes are ratcheted up. All humanity hangs in the balance. There's a cosmic war in the wilderness. There's a a war in the wilderness. There's no bullets being fired. There's no spears being thrown. But make no mistake, there is a war. If he can get Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the the ultimate Adam, the ultimate representative of humanity, who is also God, if he can get Jesus to sin in his humanity, it's all over. It's all over, Red Rover. It is done. We are done. And you might say, well, Jesus is God, Adrian. So, you know, he's got a bit of an advantage. Yes, but he was truly man. That means he was limited, constrained to a body, emptied out, it says, the kenosis in Philippians 2, Greek word meaning emptying out. That means he sweated. He needed food. He needed water. Remember the the lady at the well? He was thirsty there. He was really thirsty. What happens next? as Satan targets the Lord Jesus Christ. Now compare Adam and Jesus for a moment. Adam is sweetly satisfied in that garden, yeah? Isn't he? Plenty of fruit, plenty of food, satisfied, great work-life balance, awesome, good-looking wife. Man, like, you know, they would have been on Facebook. Adam would have been posting. Eve would have been posting. And when he said, you are so beautiful, it would have been true. And when she said, you are awesome, it would have been true with no pretense all the time, not just in that Facebook moment. He was so satisfied, full, plenty of food, probably very fit, no obesity in the garden, no imperfection in the garden. And so you would think that he was primed, ready to go. If he was a prize fighter and Satan's about to make his move, he's ready. But you know where Adam is while all his tempting's going on? Just sitting quietly by while his wife kind of, you know, Deals with Satan. But even Satan, she, I mean, even uh, Eve, she would have been an awesome woman warrior, wouldn't she? Yes, she would have been very strong. She would beat you in an arm wrestle, you blokes, with your fallen bodies. Okay. 
They should have been at their best. Now you, 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 you juxtapose the garden and, and the desert. And what do you see? You see Jesus. When did he last eat? 40 days. When did he last have a nice, comfortable bed without getting rained on? You know, sand and dust, all that other stuff. He probably was in a cave, maybe, if he was blessed in that way, but maybe not. Adam, first Adam, second Adam. Yes, he was God, but he was being, he was being truly emptied out. He had nothing, no food, no water. He's about to uh, probably ride on these last legs, humanly speaking, so obviously there's something supernatural going on as well. And this cosmic war starts. <laughs> Satan comes to him. What, what is going to happen? Let's read Jesus from Luke 4, 1 to 7. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Do you realize the Holy Spirit, God in his sovereignty, led Jesus? People often skim over this. Led Jesus deliberately into confrontation with Satan. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Exactly, because you're not Jesus. You need to pray every day, lead us not into temptation. The Son of God, however, in his weakened state, his emptied out state, his wearied state, is led into confrontation with Satan. And 40 days he was tempted. So, you know, these three that we're talking about are just a summary. The whole time, bang, boom, principalities and powers gathered together in any way they can to take down the Son of God. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be all yours. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And again, Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So here is this cosmic war and Satan comes with his same strategy. Distort, embellish, antagonize, torment, bring hopelessness to the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. Verse 3, take the bread, satisfy yourself now. But the Holy Spirit has led him to fast. And if he were to take that bread, it would be at the instigation of the devil. It would be the devil's will, not God's will. You know, it made me think about fasting. I wonder, I, don't, I could not build a massive doctrine on this, but I wonder if we fast, when we fast, we show our sorrow for that first moment when we ate when we shouldn't have. And by denying that, we show that we are taking that seriously. And then when we fast, we also remember our Lord Jesus Christ who triumphed in the desert. This is just me indirect thinking, okay? But I wonder if there's some part of that in there about fasting. Verse 5, take the power now. All the kingdoms of the world. He's embellished that. Near horizon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on. You can have these kingdoms. Not telling him, which Jesus already knows anyway, that all those kingdoms are going to be taken away once the rebellion is done and given to the rightful king. Verse 9, take the glory now. You know, throw yourself down and then be lifted up and everyone will praise you. 
No, because it's God's will that Jesus will be mocked, that he'll be not recognized and he'll go to the cross. So already here he's trying to attack the whole plan of the cross. He doesn't say as well that man's glory is as fickle as palm trees and worship on one day and then a bloody cross and pungent hatred the next. That's man's you know, glory. Oh, yeah, you did a real cool thing. You levitated and floated down. and then It's just so fickle. All trying to drive a wedge between the will of the Father and the Son, which would bring torment and hopeless futility for us all. But Jesus, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. But Jesus, in this cosmic war, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But Jesus, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The new Adam, right when he should have failed, he is victorious. But you know what happens next? A more opportune time, verse 13. A more opportune time. And you'll see over the next three years, Jesus confronted all the time by demons. Three years of being wearied, abused, mocked. Three years of selfless ministry. Three years of loving, serving, growing as in growing his people that were following him, his disciples. And even reaching out over and over again to those that hated him, as we saw in John, over and over again, dialoguing with those in John that hated him, telling them to turn. And then John 14, as we come to the climax, to the grand scheme, to the master scheme, which we all need to be aware of, the master plan, John 14, verse 30, I will not speak with you much longer. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded. He could have just said that. He's actually going to do it. And that means Satan is coming. He comes in Judas. He stirs up all the Pharisees. All the forces, all the powers are railed against the Son of God. This is the master scheme, reaching its master stroke. As Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those rulers, those authorities, those powers of the dark world, those spiritual forces of evil, all converging on the Son of God. No wonder he sweats blood in the garden. The master scheme. What happens next? This is three years now. Three years after he first confronted Satan, what happens next? Is there any hope? Is there any hope? There is. There is. Genesis 3.15, I don't know if anyone realises this, what it's called, maybe some probably do. After um, God is delaying punishment, yes, the curse has come, there are consequences. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and, he, and, and uh, you will strike his heel. So bruise his heel is a better word. It's going to do some, a little bit of damage. But would you much rather a bruised heel or a crushed head? You would much rather have a bruised heel. So there's some, what theologians have called this, the proto-evangelion, which is the prototype gospel, the first sign of the gospel, the first sign that there's good news even in the curse, that the curse is going to bring hope in some way. That's why Paul says at the end of Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Is there any hope? There is. Because 
God's master plan, God's master scheme was always, always going to outwit, outlast, outplay Satan's master scheme. And I don't want your hearts to sort of go, oh, yeah, he was building up, building up, building up, and now he's got to the bit that we all know. I want you to see this afresh, my brothers and sisters. I want you to picture the Lord Jesus in the desert, cosmic battle going on in his humanity. And Adam, who failed, the first Adam who failed, and the second Adam who's victorious. And I want you to picture him as he goes to the cross, sweating, bleeding the whole way, onto the cross, nailed to the cross, beaten up beyond all recognition. And this is God's master scheme, master plan. This is what it looks like when God wins. And you look at your own life, right? You look at your own life, and when you see death and suffering, you need to know that this is what it looks like when God wins. Chapter one of what it looks like when God wins. Chapter two, the open tomb. He takes the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus willingly goes into mortal combat, literally executed. The master scheme is executed. The master plan is Jesus. And he goes to that cross willingly. He dies. He takes on all the wrath, the punishment that was ours, that Satan would use over and over and over again and will keep trying to use over and over again. And if you for an instant believe that that cross wasn't effective for your sin, then just go ahead, feel guilty. Go ahead, have a little bit of me time, a little bit of self-reflection. Oh, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, poor me. Or remember that once and for all, principalities and powers, any guilt, any blood guilt was all put to death with Jesus. And the master scheme, the master plan was God's master scheme, God's master plan. Yes, Satan acts of his own free volition. Uh, volition. Um, we act off our own free volition. But God outwits, outplays, outmasters, the so-called masters, every single time. As it says in Hebrews, the children have flesh and blood. He too shared in their humanity. This is Jesus, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. See, see that? That's what it looks like when God wins. By his death, by Jesus' death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death wrecks everything. Death makes everything stink. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So there's Satan scheming away. He's on deck, this ship, and yet it's God who's steering the ship. So he does all that he wants on this ship. We're doing all that we want, but God is steering the ship. And we should be afraid with all this in mind of what Paul was afraid of, which is that the serpent's cunning, who is so, he's so temporary, guys. And yet he is very real, and we need to be aware but that the serpent's cunning will lead us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And that can look like so many, it can look like you're doing extra Bible study. It can look like you're going to church lots. It can look like you're not going to church and you're justifying it by saying, oh, I'm just doing God's will out here. I don't need the church. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They're always fighting. And yet Jesus himself says, that's my bride. So be on guard. I just, I just really want us as Willow Burn to be on guard because that's what Jesus does say over and over again. Be on guard. I want you to triple O things. I, I, I get your own acronym. I don't care. But when you are out there and things are going bad or things are going very well, because he is an angel of light. We'll see more of this next week when we go through Ephesians 6. But orientate. 
So in prayer, you're orientating spiritually. You say, Lord, what's going on here? Something doesn't feel quite right. Give me discernment. Give me understanding. I don't want to be outwitted by Satan. And as you orientate, you're actually in prayer, oxygenating your spiritual life. You're depending on God. So often God is irrelevant. He's small. That's what, that's what Satan is doing. He's reducing the creator in your mind and bringing up your circumstances, bringing up creation, making it bigger. But I want you to open up as you pray, humble yourself and go, what's going on in my heart, God? Is it passive, dead disobedience? Am I spiritually attuned? This gossip, bitterness, complaint, Lord, help me to obey you, to be patient, to be loving, to be joyful, peace, peaceful. And, you know, if you're serious, you know, in our twos and threes, I know some of them are faltering a bit. Well, get back together because you need each other, to be praying for each other. And just ask yourself, is there something that's going on in your life and has been going on for quite some time where Satan has been given too much license in your life? to distort, to embellish, to antagonise, to, to, to torment and bring hope as if to say it will never change. What a load of rubbish. You know, get together with someone this week. If you're serious, get, to, to get together with someone. Maybe you want, to, want us to pray with you and go, I don't know, there is something actually and I, want, I need help. I need your help in prayer. I need your understanding. I need to know that you're not going to judge me. If I, came, I don't. But if I came to one of you and said, I have been struggling with porn for a long time. And well, what would you do? Like, are you the kind of people I could come to? What about this? I don't. But if I did and I had, you know, I'm struggling in my sexuality. Oh, this makes us cringe, but this is the society that we live in. I'm struggling in my sexuality. I'm struggling about whether I like other men. And could I come to you safely and go, oh, look, this is, this is where I'm at, man. What about just the basics of, man, like I'm just really struggling with a feeling of ongoing anxiety, depression, hopelessness. If I came to you with that, would you judge me or would you help me? I want to finish off today with this and this will be, part of this will be our Bible verse. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God, the God whose master scheme sent his son to the cross, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves there under God's mighty hand, God's mighty hand that was stapled, pinned, nailed to a cross. That he may lift you up. It's a scarred hand that lifts you up. It's a scarred hand. He's the only God in any of the world of all the other world's gods, inverted commas, um, that has a scarred hand when he lifts you up with that mighty hand. Everyone else has a fierce, real powerful sovereign, you know. Only our God's sovereign hand has a scar. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's awesome. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And here's truth to talk into our near horizon experience. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you. He will make you strong, firm, steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together as we remember this victory meal and as we prepare our hearts to remember him. Father, I want to thank you because you are our spectacularly wonderful God. 
beautiful in ways that we don't even yet understand. I want to thank you for your master plan. And I know that if that's what you did with your son, even in that most horrible moment, Lord, to a certain extent, we will all suffer in one way or another. And I just pray that in that moment, we remember your son. We remember chapter one and there draw hope. But Lord, just fire up our hope. Let the clutch out on our hope as we contemplate chapter two, which is the open tomb. And then, of course, chapter three, which is all of us with super bodies, all of us with re-enlivened molecular structure with energy that won't dissipate, entropy that's reversed in a beautiful place, the earth re renovated, restored. Lord, encourage us with that. And Lord, I pray that we will be bold in these words and we'd encourage each other and encourage those that are our, our friends, our, our workmates, those that we want to serve. May we truly be a church that loves, serves, grows. And Lord, as we approach this table that you told us to do in remembrance of you and to partake of in remembrance of you, Lord, we want to remember today the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to remember the victory in the desert, the victory in the, on the cross, the victory of the open tomb. That's a, that's a marvellous truth to take away today. So help us to take it away in Jesus' name. Amen. Just read from Colossians. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. That was directly after this meal that we're about to remember. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So I'm going to break the bread, which represents his body broken for us. And I'm going to pray um, after we've collected the, the juice and the bread. And obviously we'll hold the juice together to sing. Uh, sorry, to, to partake of that. And we're going to sing a song, Come Thou Fount, which is an awesome song. Uh, I did promise, and I'll do it now. Random. Sorry, I'm going to muck up your carefully ordered book here, but I'll put it back. I've got my finger here. All right. I've just opened it up. Okay. Though Satan, I'll just open it up to anyone. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless state and has shed his own blood for my soul. Let's sing together.